Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio. Joe had said a line that really grabbed me in that letter. He said, I am incarcerated, but my soul is free. Something along those lines. And I repeated that quote in my letter and uh, sent it back to him and then carried on. And then Joe wrote back. And I was so moved by his letter. I was really moved. It was direct and so well-written and thoughtful, reflective. And he said he was looking for a companion. And I said, I cannot be your companion, but I can be your friend. And that's how we began. Yes, it was early on, but it was more gradual for me, but like a gradual deepening. It was, uh, you know, for me, it was unmistakable. And I, you know, every now and then tease Sheila now and say, oh, I knew, you know, basically that we were gonna be together. And the letter I said, and what I remember is that for me, a companion was someone who I could be myself with. That's something that's not always possible in a prison environment where you're judged from all angles. And, you know, and especially in a, in a men's prison, you know, any sign of quote-unquote weakness is frowned upon and sometimes preyed upon, to be honest. 
Joe served half his life in prison, 25 years for taking the life of another man. Sheila met Joe while he was serving his time. She was 20 years older than him, a former foreign correspondent for the New York Times, a mother, a homeowner, and she fell in love and married someone who was incarcerated. It was the last thing she ever expected to happen to her. Joe was still behind bars for 12 years of their relationship. I first learned about Sheila and Joe's love story in an incredible book by the journalist Elizabeth Greenwood. It's called Love Lockdown, Dating, Sex, and Marriage in America's Prisons. At the end of this episode, we're going to do something a little unconventional for Committed. We are going to bring Elizabeth on to talk to us about what she learned about love and commitment by interviewing so many couples involved in the prison system. Now, Sheila and Joe's story got under my skin for a lot of reasons. First of all, Sheila and I have so many similarities. She was a journalist. She was also a woman who was intent on creating an independent life for herself outside of a relationship with a man. I just couldn't imagine how someone like that, how someone so much like me, would fall in love with someone who was incarcerated for murder. But she did. Their love thrived while Joe was behind bars, and it is still thriving today. Our marriage is very, very important to us. So I didn't really, you know, people would say, oh, well, Joe's coming home now. You're going to, you, you, you guys don't know what to expect. You're going to have this or that. And I think some people did not mean us well, to be very honest. You know, I'm thinking, well, sure, there will be surprises, but not, there will be no game changers. There will be nothing that tears us apart. And I was right about that. I'm Joe Piazza. This is Committed. To understand how Sheila and Joe got to where they are today, you have to know who they were before they met. Sheila started her career at the New York Times. She was a Metro reporter when she was 27 and then moved on to write national stories and eventually got sent around the globe as a foreign correspondent. I was at a point in life where I was looking for stability. I had spent the previous six or seven years of my career as a foreign correspondent. So I was based in Africa and then Europe, which meant that I spent a lot of my time living out of suitcases. And I finally had to acknowledge that was not the life I wanted. I was living someone else's dream, someone else's life. So I returned to New York. I decided one of my yearnings, very deeply held yearnings, was to be a mother. I adopted my son. He was three. He's now 32. (laughs) And I bought a co-op in Greenwich Village and started living a life where when I left home that morning, I knew I'd return home that evening. And it was a lovely life. Joe grew up in East New York and Harlem. 
He was the oldest of five. His dad was a pilot, so he wasn't around that much. Joe bounced around between relatives, sometimes even living in homeless shelters. He was often put in charge of his younger siblings. In 1989, I went to college, started my college career, and then after the first summer of the first semester that I went to school in 89, my then-girlfriend got pregnant with our son. My son was born in 1990. So in 1991, my son was one years old. During that time, I dropped out of school. I didn't want to, but I dropped out of school and ultimately got involved with selling drugs, something that I'm not proud of. I worked for a little bit prior to that, meaning once I dropped out of school, because I, I think I was like, Oh my God, I'm about to be a father. I got to be a better father than my father. That's something I always vowed to do. And so after I was making like minimum wage, it was like three, I think it was like 335 or something like that back then. And this is in New York City, which is very expensive. So anyway, I ultimately got involved in selling drugs. I knew people, you know, it's not hard to find people. So I knew people who were selling drugs that got involved with that. And then in 1991, in the summer of 91, I got, well, not into an altercation, but someone who I was with got into an altercation with one of the people who lived upstate where I was going to school. That person thought that I had something to do with it. Several months later, in October, October 3rd, October 2nd to be exact, of 1991, we got me and the guy who thought that I was trying to cause him problems, actually trying to rob him. Someone else tried to. And he thought I had something to do with it, approached me. We got into an altercation and, and I ended up taking his life. So in a panic and fear and, and all of that. Joe went on the run for five months. He was relieved when he was finally arrested. He went before the judge. He was convicted and sent upstate to serve his sentence. So there's Joe. And then there's Sheila. Sheila was settled and happy and content. She was so grateful for everything that her life had given her that she wanted to give back. She began to volunteer in prison ministry with her church. So I signed up and I started going to the meetings and I kept, I kept saying, what is it you'd like me to do? Because they didn't really seem to do anything. They sat around and chatted. So eventually... They said, well, okay, we have to give Sheila something to do. And they pulled out this batch of letters that had been sitting around. And they said, you're a writer. You know, I was a journalist. And can you respond to these letters? So I took it on that. You know, that was that was my assignment. And it was only in the it was in the course. I mean, and I took it on. I'm, you know, I tend to be very responsive, responsible and dutiful. So I took it on, but but as I wrote and as the number of people who wrote to me wrote to me grew, I really saw the power and beauty and promise of so many men and women. So it became more than it was originally. Joe had been serving time for about a decade. He was lonely. Someone had told me about someone who I was incarcerated with told me, you know, about the prison, the, the prison ministry. I wrote looking for a pen pal. And I asked to, you know, correspond with a young lady. That was a famous speech that I used. And a couple of weeks later, Sheila wrote back. She responded that, 
<laughs> that they're a woman, you know, at the prison ministry, not sure if they're a young woman or something to that effect. And then I wrote back a second time to, to explain myself, to basically say that I didn't mean that literally. I meant it figuratively speaking. And then talked more about myself and, yeah, kind of like my world outlook and all that. So that's how it started. <laughs> yeah, Sheila, I like what you wrote back. You're like, look, I am not a young woman. Right. <laughs> right. The prison ministry had... And has no young ladies. <laughs> so I, 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 and I tend to be literal. So I did write back and, you know, and I, I didn't think much beyond that. You know, I, although he had said a line that really grabbed me in that letter. He said, I am incarcerated, but my soul is free something along those lines. And when I responded to him, I said, we don't have any, you know, young ladies in the prison ministry, but I'm sure you'll find what you're looking for. And I repeated that quote in my letter and uh, sent it back to him and then carried on. And then Joe wrote back and I was so moved by his letter. I was really moved. It was direct and so well-written and thoughtful, reflective. And he said he was looking for a companion. And I said, I cannot be your companion, but I can be your friend. And that's how we began. And Joe, why were you looking for a companion at that point? What, what exactly were you hoping to find through this letter writing exercise? Yeah, so I, in the letter I said, and what I re- remember is that for me, a companion was someone who I could be myself with. That's something that's not always um, possible in a prison environment where you're judged from all angles. And, you know, in, in especially in a, in a men's prison, the, you know, any sign of quote-unquote weakness is frowned upon and sometimes preyed upon. And so, yeah, so for me, companionship was more someone to really, like I said, allow me to be fully human. And as I think I said something to that effect. Although I was incarcerated, that I wanted someone to help me stay in touch with my humanity. And so that was what I think I was looking for as far as companionship, someone who I can just be myself with and I can be more fully human, so to speak. And what was it about Joe in particular? What stood out in his letters that just, you're like, all right, we, we, we can start talking. And there was an age gap between the two of you too, right? Oh, yes. 20 years. <laughs> I'm, uh, 20, I'm 20 years older. And so to me, that was, you know, I mean, I, I was not thinking of anything beyond writing letters to Joe and the other people, but there was something very special about Joe. And I think it began with that letter, not the the one he wrote, the second letter, not the original one, which I basically said, okay, good luck. (laughs) But when he wrote back, that letter was beautifully written and heartfelt. And I said, this person is going to be in my life. And I didn't, you know, and that was in, in a short amount of time, I knew that Joe would be in my life. Now, initially, 
I said, hmm, maybe he'll be like a brother. I mean, that was my thinking, that when he comes home, we will have a really strong bond and we'll be like brother-sister. That was my initial thinking, actually. But I knew it was a very special, it was going to be a special relationship. Now, when did it change from this could be my little brother to this? (laughs) This could be way more than my little brother. My dear, dear friend, Rose, sat me down and asked me how I felt about Joe. Rose was 25 years my senior and just a just a beautiful spirit. And Rose, she met Joe. She was really involved in his life. After I introduced them, Rose was really involved in my life and my son's life. She was just so special. She took care of us in a in an emotional Uh, and spiritual sense. And so Rose, who was very perceptive, said, how do you feel about Joe? And I said, you know, I think he's a great guy. And and, uh, she said, no, how do you really feel about Joe? And I said, I really, really care about Joe. I said, but Rose, he's 20 years younger And of course, I was saying that to the wrong person because when I met Rose, she was going with someone 30 years younger. So she was like, so (laughs) what's what's that got to do with anything? Why would you deny yourself what could be what seems like already a beautiful relationship? Why would you deny yourself allowing it to grow and deepen? That was a turning point for me. And Joe, how about you? Did Was there ever a turning point for you? Or were you, were you always like, no, nah, I'm not your little brother. I'm all into this. <laughs> oh, no, I definitely was thinking that. I wasn't. I never thought, oh, she'd be my big sister. I just, just not, you know, no. So I never thought that. For me, like Sheila, I don't know if there was a specific point. But I felt immediately, like once we started writing on a consistent basis, which was early on, that it was, you know, to me, it was, I felt the deep connection. I felt that it was just like a gradual, yeah, gradually deepening. And the conversations, we, it, it, it felt like we were like in person, the way we wrote to each other. I, I tend to be very talkative, talkative, communicative. So for me, that connotes connection. That's, you know, I never thought about it then, but I'm clear now that that connotes connection. Yeah, so it was early on, but it was more gradual for me, but like a gradual deepening. It was, uh, you know, for me, it was unmistakable. And I, you know, every now and then tease Sheila now and say, oh, I knew, you know, basically that we were going to be together. You know, you were in denial. I wasn't in denial. I I didn't have the, and I don't have, and it's, you know, the the age difference is, it doesn't mean anything to me. You know, because I said, I'm like, I'm an adult. Like, I'm not a child. I'm an adult. So that was it for me and remains it for me. (laughs) Sheila and Joe spent a year exchanging those early letters. Joe eventually asked Sheila if they could meet in person. She agreed at first and then decided against it, worried that seeing each other face to face would ruin their friendship. 
Finally, after a lot of soul searching, she decided to go. Sheila was no stranger to visiting prisons. She'd done it a lot as a journalist, so she was comfortable walking in. What she was less comfortable with was Joe seeing her for the first time. But she really shouldn't have worried. Joe found her in the visiting room right away and pulled her into this massive hug. It was like a really good first date. A great first date. And when Sheila got home, she wrote Joe a note saying, If I do not say this, I will explode. I love you. I love you. I love you. I am in love with you. Joe responded right away. In fact, he wrote his response on the outside of the envelope so Sheila wouldn't even have to open it to see it. He said, I love you too. Then it was time to share the news with their family and friends. But first, let's take a quick break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. 
Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I recall telling certain friends and certainly my sisters that I cared about Joe. And everybody seemed pretty okay with that. But when I said I was marrying Joe, it became a very controversial subject. And Joe said, you know, he definitely understood the controversy and the the concern. And he was good about it in that respect. For me, I never lost my resolve or never lost my clarity. I was always very clear-eyed. You know, once I knew that I loved Joe, and I I acknowledged that. I never had any second thoughts. So while my sisters initially, my mother, a friend said, don't do it, you've gotta be crazy. I said, I'm an adult, I love him, that's a wrap. Shortly before Joe and I were about to get married, that my sisters, they called me and said, we got your back, we love you, we will support you. So that was uh, that real. So they came around. Other people came around as well. I will say this. My mother was the only person who had not so much an opinion, but it's my mother. So she was like, you know, do you love her? You know, basically. And I was like, you know, yes. And, you know, she's good for me. I'm trying to step up. You know, you know, you taught me to be, you know, a good person. So I'm trying to step up and do the right thing and all that. And so her thing was basically like, you know, okay. I mean, my mother's not, yeah, you know. I mean, not saying she can't be judgmental. She was just like, okay, if you're happy, then I'm happy. I'm good. Yeah, that's where she was at. Other family members, like my sister, I'm the oldest of five. So they're they're just like, okay, cool. You know, meaning like kind of just like went along with it. There was no nothing. So it was very different than Sheila's family. But I did, I'll say this, so I did get where they were coming from, that they were, you know, protective of their loved one. So I understood that. And then 
with some, if not all of them, there was also preconceived notions, which I understood, I didn't appreciate, and even though I uh, was good about it, doesn't mean I was not angry at times, because my thinking, and, and I said to Sheila, is that they don't know me. They know caricatures of people they see on TV or people they've heard about or whatever case may be, but they don't know me, you know? And so that's what, and again, I didn't hold it in an angry way. It, it actually helped me to not be stung, so to speak, so deeply by their judgment. The two of them got married 15 months after Sheila's first visit to the prison. And so I bought my dress, I bought my outfit for the wedding. I bought Joe a shirt and a tie. And Joe's mom came in. Our sons were there. Rose came. And we found a minister in the area where Joe was incarcerated. The minister came, had a meeting with us. She came to the prison a few weeks, I guess, before we got married. And she said something to us that uh, we recite to this day because it still applies. She said, you will be challenged. People will despise you. People will question you. She said, do you. And we do us to this day. They got married on July 25th, 2005. Joe wouldn't be eligible for parole until 2016, in another 11 years. In their vows, the two of them promised to live the spirit of the letters that had started everything in the first place. The passion, their honesty, and their respect for one another. Once Joe was a married man, things started to change for him inside. Guards commented on the groceries that Sheila would send him from Trader Joe's, Joe thinks that once the guards saw that you were loved by someone on the outside, they'd think twice before messing with you. The biggest change is that once they got married, they were allowed to have conjugal visits. And until I read Elizabeth Greenwood's Love Lockdown, I didn't totally understand how conjugal visits worked. One of the things that helped us tremendously and helps a lot of people in New York State is that they have conjugal visits. I think it's uh, New York State is one out of maybe four states, and that's, to me, too really too bad, that has uh, conjugal visits. So every few months or so, we would have almost two days, you know, on a conjugal visit. So Sheila would be able to bring in food from the outside. We'd be able to bring, able to bring some of my you know, stuff from the inside, meaning food products, but also different clothing items that I couldn't go, let's say, wear on the visiting room or whatever. So, yeah, and we'd be able to create normal or normalcy over those two days. And so that's something we look forward to. And we had really good times, really, really good times and did a lot of, you know, obviously bonding as a married couple. One of the things that I took away from Elizabeth's book was I feel like there are so many misunderstandings about what a conjugal visit is. I had no idea that it was such an intense like bonding time and a time where you get to live together almost as a normal family. It involves cooking and talking. And I think so many people just attach kind of sexual connotations to it when it's really a time for connection. Is that what it was for you guys? Right. And I, you're, you're absolutely right. When people hear about conjugal visits, they think, so, so what, they put you all in a room, you have sex, and then you go home? What, what's that like? So 
But actually, it is an opportunity to spend time together. You are in New York State. The lingo or jargon is trailer. You get a trailer. Oh, you got a trailer? You going on a trailer? Oh, good for you. Yes, Joe's going on a trailer. You know, because you're in a trailer. You're on prison grounds, but you're in a trailer that is set up as if it's a small apartment. So you've got the living room and the bedroom and you've got the kitchen and kitchen facilities. You've got television with cable. So it really is an opportunity to be with your loved one. And and for many people, it is it may be their parents, maybe their children. So it it allows you that that downtime to be with your loved ones, to experience your own version of normal. And I will let Joe talk about what that means for for someone who's incarcerated. But, you know, for me, it really allowed us to get to know each other beyond the visiting room where there is always a CO, there's all there are always eyes you're you know on the phone that people can listen in uh your letters people can always read them this was our time alone right and so yeah we were able to play like the board games that you could use for example play music you could uh, borrow depending on the prison you can borrow cds now I don't know if they what they're using now because no one uses CDs. But but you know in some places had cassettes. You know yeah. we've done vision boards. We've talked about our own personal goals. We talked about family issues or things we were trying to figure out. And yeah, the conjugal visits made all the difference. To you know I remember the first time. I don't remember the exact day, but I know it was in July of two thousand five. So six months after our wedding, it wasn't immediately as we had hoped, but, it, you know, because it's a process for approval and all this other stuff. And I remember waking up when I sleep, I'm, you know, I'm sleep. I mean, not that I, I could be awoken, but, you know, I sleep pretty good, you know, eight hours straight and stuff like that. But I, I won't say that I couldn't sleep the first night, but I woke up. And just stared in a, into the ceiling, like, wow, this is real. Like, I'm with my wife. I had never been married before. Sheila has been married before. So it was just surreal. Yeah, it was just really surreal. So really, especially as you can imagine, um, for me and incarcerated people, it, it is ne- the, the closest thing to freedom is the conjugal visit. It's the closest thing to make you feel free and alive and human and normal. And, and as Sheila pointed out, whether your children are visiting, your grandparents, whatever, you know, it was the closest thing to freedom. So it was everything. Obviously, you had to stay out of disciplinary trouble because it, it's not a right. It's a privilege. So, yeah, but it was it was great. It made all the difference. Joe and Sheila worked together on a number of projects while Joe was in prison. He even wrote a book called Think Outside the Cell, an entrepreneur's guide for the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. Sheila and Joe had a book launch party for just two people during one of their conjugal visits. By 2016, Joe was up for parole. 
In his letter to the court, he expressed deep remorse for the life that he took. He also told the story of how he met and fell in love with Sheila. Joe wrote, Today I am a mature 46-year-old man who is happily married to a loving and supportive wife. I have a deep sense of responsibility to my family, my community, and the larger society. And I have the stability that I have been unconsciously seeking since my youth. I am prepared to live a life that I can be proud of. Joe was granted parole on his first shot. Sheila and Joe then had three months to get ready for marriage on the outside. Let's take a quick break. Be right back. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Once Sheila and Joe learned that Joe would be getting out, they had just three months to figure out what that was going to look like. Sheila Googled everything. She Googled things like men's wardrobe essentials, and then she went shopping for Joe. They started making lists of all of the things they wanted to do together to make up for 12 lost years. On October 3rd, 2016, Sheila picked Joe up from the Fishkill Correctional Facility. You know, I was never nervous about it. And I think partly because Joe and I knew each other so well, we had really worked on our relationship. Our relationship, our marriage was very, very important to us. I remember on one of the uh, conjugal visits, we were watching Oprah. This was maybe two years into our marriage. And so there was a segment on Oprah with a, I think it was a psychologist. And he said that couples every year should sit with each other and each should list five words to describe their marriage. And so Joe and I said, we looked at each other and said, That's got our names on it. So every year since that day, every year as part of our anniversary, we repeat our vows and we sit down across from each other and come up with five words to describe our marriage. And that is part of the work that we do because those words, good years, it's like, woohoo, we're doing our thing. Other years, we're like, "Uh uh-oh, we got work to do. So that's part of the work. Our marriage is very, very important to us. So I didn't really, you know, people would say, oh, well, Joe's coming home now. You're going to, you you guys don't know what to expect. You're going to have this or that. And I think some people did not mean us well, to be very honest. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking, well, sure, there will be surprises, but not, there will be no game changers. There will be nothing that, that, Uh, tears us apart. And I was right about that. So as we prepared, we thought about, it was almost like dreaming. Like, what do we want to do? Where do we want to go? What are the things we need? 
in order to make this a smooth transition. So that's how we proceeded, basically, thinking about, you know, practical things and wonderful dreamlike things. So that's how we proceeded. So, yeah, and I, I tend to be, or at least tended to be, a planner, among other things. And so, like Sheila said, for me, it was just like planning out, if you will, the next phase of our marriage, of our relationship. And for me, it was more, well, for me and Sheila, just for me, I think it was more about some of the things we wanted to do together. And New York City just had so much to, you know, to see and do and experience so much. It's almost uh, five years now that I've been home. And so, yeah, it was more of that. It wasn't like, it wasn't hard work for us, like Sheila said, because we knew, we communicated a lot. We both communicated. It's like, we write, we speak, we yeah, and they both come fairly easy to us. Like, so it wasn't like, okay, I'm coming home now. What are we going to do? What's it? You know, it was like, I'm coming home. You know, it was just that. I had to adjust to the cats, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was the biggest adjustment, really, literally. That was the biggest uh, one. Well, not literally. That was one adjustment. The other adjustment for me was more, you know, not Sheila. It wasn't per se Sheila, though we had some adjustments. End up, ended up going to therapy to address some of those. But it was more the world, like being in the world was an adjustment. Spatial intelligence, for example, in other words, like just relearning the city that I had left so long ago, learning how to use the metro transit card, you know, it was things like that. Technology was driving me crazy. People, I'll say this last thing, New York City is like what people who don't live in New York City imagine it, meaning a lot of hustle and bustle, a lot of crowds. And it's not that I forgot that, but I for, I don't recall, I'm, I'm a Brooklynite by birth or whatever, but we live in Manhattan. Manhattan tends to be very compact, a lot of people, I mean, Brooklyn does too, but, you know, people bump you in the streets, they don't say excuse me, and I'm like, oh my God. In prison, you know, you better say sorry, <laughs> excuse me. It's a very different thing. So that was an adjustment. I was like, oh, this person not going to say sorry. They just keep coming. So I had those type of adjustments. So not a lot of planning necessary. I mean, we plan for my wardrobe. We plan for in terms of employment, you know, those type of things. But beyond that, it was like, do you? Like, you know, that's it. We didn't skip a beat for the most part. One of the hardest things that Sheila and Joe had to navigate together on the outside was the parole system. Joe had to check in with his parole officer every few weeks at first, and then every few months for the next three years. He was told he had to enroll in school or get a job. Neither of those things was a very big deal. Joe chose to do both of them. But he couldn't leave the city without permission. And for years, he had a 9 p.m. curfew, there were random checks to make sure that he was following both of those rules to a T. Yeah, that was hard. And I remember before Joe came home, friends who had been incarcerated, who friends who came home, some would say, I, w- I didn't feel completely free until I was off parole. And that struck me as a little odd because I would, you know, I was thinking, well, yeah, but you're not in prison. You, you, you know, you 
basically have your life. You're going where you want, doing what you want. And that's what I thought until Joe came home and he was on parole. It really is this sense that it is not your own life because they can show up anytime. And Joe's second one would show up at 11, 1130 at night and have to come into our bedroom and stand there. And I mean, it was really, really totally intrusive and, uh, you know, disrespectful. And, and he never, you know, I mean, he was never disrespectful verbally, but just the manner in which he did his job was disrespectful. And so I got it. I mean, for me, it was, I mean, I was so just anxious about this parole officer. I mean, because we usually, you know, like on a work night, on a weeknight, we're asleep by 11. So we don't necessarily hear the knock or the bell or the phone. I mean, we just don't hear it necessarily. So I would wake up and go to the front door because the, the one time he didn't wake us up, he left a post-it on our door saying he was there and Joe needed to call. So I would get up and I'd go to the door and see if there were post-its. I mean, I, this guy had freaked me out. We'd be out and I'd be looking at my watch and I'd say, oh, Joe, it's almost nine o'clock. We got to leave. I, so it was it. I totally began to understand how freedom wasn't free, you know, how you really weren't free when you were under the uh, thumb of parole. And I'll just say briefly, I, I felt some of what Sheila felt. I, I didn't feel in the same way. One, because I tend not to be as anxious as Sheila, so I wasn't as, you know, I, I for me, it made me angry. I, I often felt angry because I felt that to Sheila's point, you know, some of it, I mean, there were worse parole officers for sure. You know, he wasn't, in all fairness, he wasn't like mean, but he made it clear in his own way, deliberate, deliberate ways to make it, he made it known that he was quote unquote in charge and that, you know, I need to walk, I needed to walk a straight line. And it was unnecessary. It just was unnecessary because, well, I'm not the same person. I'm no threat to society. I mean, it was just, you know, unnecessary. It wasn't jittery or anything like that. I do remember once we would be startled a couple of times. We'd be startled because, like Sheila said, 11 o'clock at night, we're asleep. I, I, I work and go to school even now. I work and go to school. He knows that. But he pops up, you know, you know, late that time of the evening so anyway, I remember once Sheila scared the hell out of me because it scared her. And she's, yeah, I'm not going to say his name, but she's like, it's blah, 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 you know, the PO's name. And I, you know, I think I was doing like Kung Fu moves in my sleep because, no, I literally, I thought I was being attacked, you know, it's Sheila, you know, I woke up to Sheila standing over me saying, it's blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, you know, okay, okay. You know, but at first I was like swinging. Stuff. So it was, you know, we had that one moment. So that's just to give you an idea of how it did, you know, occasionally affect us. But yeah, so that that was something. So it's glad to be off. Celebrated, had a party. Yeah. <laughs> and the first couple of weeks, I remember being out to live, you know, not because I had anything to do, but I was like, I'm going to be out to after nine o'clock because I don't have a curfew. So I'm just going to walk in the neighborhood, you know, things like that because I can, you know, so that's that's a great feeling. Do you think that 
the way that you guys met and the way that you began your relationship, has that made your marriage stronger outside? Because you had to pull on all of these non-traditional muscles to make it work early on. I absolutely do believe that. Joe, in getting to know each other, Joe and I had no distractions when it came to exploring each other, our personalities, our desires, our uh, dreams, who we were, what had made us the way we were. We talked about all those things in our letters. Our letters just really opened our lives to each other. So had we not had that, and then the phone calls, and then the visits. I do think that had it been another way, let's say we had met, well, let's put it this way, to my feeling, had I met Joe on a subway or at a party, I'm 20 years older. I would not have given Joe the time of day. I just wouldn't have. You know, I would have said, this is really a great young man. And I, you know, I really wish him well, but that's not how we met. And so we really gave ourselves the time and space to really know each other. And I think that has served us well throughout our relationship into our marriage, that we really know each other. Couldn't agree more. As soon as you asked the question, I said that that's definitely it. That's the irony of it, you know, and that people in general might assume that, well, that can't work. That can't be real. When in fact, it is working. It is real. And we put in and continue to put in a lot of work. It was someone said recently that they were, I forgot how they phrased it, but they basically said that it was so, I guess, fascinating to them that we were, that we are deliberate and intentional in our marriage. And to Sheila's point, you know, if I had flirted with her, let's say, all those years ago and she would have brushed me off, I don't know how I would have responded. Like, meaning if I were, if I was on the outside, I'd, you know, maybe try again and then be like, oh, okay, she doesn't like me, you know. But we got to, really look at each other's strengths, weaknesses, warts, good stuff, everything. And just, yeah, be with it and be with each other. So, What does the future hold for you guys? What are you most looking forward to in the next decade or two decades? Uh, when I think about it, I you know, I think about continuing to realize our dreams. Not only the fun and the travel and the kicking up our heels, but the, the dreams that really are important to our makeup, who we are, who we see ourselves as. And for Joe, that's entrepreneurship. It's, per, you know, personal finance as a teaching personal finance. So I really look forward to seeing him blow his life breath into that dream, those dreams, because we've talked so much about them. He started putting down the, the groundwork. And I really, you know, that to me is is something that I really want to experience in, in real time. Yeah, for me, I, that's something I want to experience as well. But I get Sheila's point, like she'd like to see, she'd like to 
witness or observe and experience me experiencing it. For me, it's that, but it's more so traveling. I keep going back to traveling. That's if I could say, if I had to say one thing uh, that I look for over the next 10, 15, 20 years, it would be to travel with my wife all over the place, Europe, Africa, the Caribbean, the United States. So several times a year, three, four times a year, travel to various places and yeah, and experience it. I'm, I'm big on taking pictures, capturing moments. Now videos, I've been, you know, doing my little live <laughs> videos. Yeah, but travel, that, that's, that's one of the big things for me. Yeah, I think that is important. In my life, travel has really opened up so many internal doors in terms of my own being. So I can't wait to experience that with Joe. love Sheila and Joe. I love their love story. And now what we're about to do is a little untraditional in committed land, but I had to do it. I really wanted to bring on Elizabeth Greenwood, who wrote Love Lockdown, to talk just a little more about all the things she learned by interviewing couples enmeshed in the prison system. Elizabeth, as you know, I was blown away by your book. I freaking loved it so much that I begged you to help me find a couple from your book that would come on this podcast. And so I want to dig in a little bit to what you learned about love and marriage and commitment by spending so much time with couples who were behind bars. Thank you so much for that, Joe. I learned so much. I think one of the main things I learned, and this is really embodied in Sheila and Joe's story, is just how much creativity and innovation this container of prison forces couples to experience and to navigate on their own. When you are separated from the person you love, the kind of mechanisms of a relationship that we rely on, like going on dates and getting to, you know, experience just kind of day-to-day physicality, texting, checking in, that's all out the window. So everything has to become much more deliberate, much more thoughtful. And those barriers and obstacles that are put in your way every single day when just trying to do the kind of basic relationship maintenance those really stop and force you at every turn to think about, is this what I want? Is this really worth all of this effort I'm putting forth? So when we have this idea of, you know, prison wives or people who, you know, strike up a relationship with someone from a pen pal site being delusional, they're really not. They really have to stop and evaluate their relationships merits all the time. So that was really interesting to me. And then, you know, back to the creativity piece, I just saw such an outpouring of this like beautiful energy that people were forced to 
think about and experience. I saw that so much in the letter writing. The letters that people exchanged with their loved one behind bars were such this beautiful testament and record to a relationship's progression and evolution over time. And just the way people found to express love and to come together. And with Sheila and Joe, I think you really see that in their commitment to social justice together and the different initiatives they took on um, while Joe was still serving his sentence. And then afterward, to have both of them looking out at this third thing in the distance and thinking about how they could help other people from the experience of their relationship. That was really inspiring to me. It's so easy out here in the free world to get bogged down with just the to-dos and the, you know, managing life and family and love, but to have something that's kind of greater than you as a couple to serve as an orienting compass, I thought that was really impressive and inspiring. And Sheila and Joe, who we talked to in this episode, who were just, they're so, they're so raw and honest about their Mm -hmm. love story. And so much of it is tragic and heartbreaking, but they're also so hopeful and so funny that you just fall in love with them right away. They were a success story. And you found a lot of success stories, but you also found a lot of couples who did not make it um, when one of them was behind bars. What were the main things you saw that made it... This, this, now that I'm saying this question, it actually sounds totally dumb. Like, what makes it harder? It's like, duh. No, no, I totally get what you mean. Because I think everyone assumes that people aren't going to make it. You know, just oh, yes, yes, <laughs> right? yes, exactly. So like Sheila and Joe were this amazing success story, but I think everyone assumes that people behind bars aren't going to make it. Some of the couples didn't make it in your book. And what were what were some of the things I, I was surprised by the things that that broke them because they weren't necessarily what you would expect. And some of the things that broke them were things that break couples on the outside, too. Like One of the things that surprised me was just how similar these relationships are to couples who don't have to deal with a prison between them. That's exactly right. And that really surprised me too. You know, people often ask me, what's the rate of success for these couples? Of course, that's what we all want to know. Can these relationships be sustained, you know, both during the incarceration and after homecoming? And, you know, from my very small data set, I would say it's about similar to what we see on the outside. It's really about half and half, you know, which is the very, you know, kind of crude divorce rate in this country perennially. And the reasons why people didn't make it really had very little to do with prison, as you might suspect it it would. So people would get out and they would realize that they're just completely incompatible, right? Like when you do have to deal with the um, mundane compatibility things, sometimes you know, that didn't work out. One thing I noticed too, is if someone is struggling with addiction, that is a huge, huge challenge to overcome 
both in terms of fulfilling probation and parole requirements. They really have the deck stacked against them in terms of classes and testing that they have to take and pay for out of pocket. And of course, just in the struggle to readjust and deal with the PTSD and deal with living with a disease like addiction. So those were the biggest pieces. And, you know, that is what we see. We see that, you know, all the time in couples, unfortunately, it's a really hard thing to overcome. So as we're talking, you are on the verge of, of, um, of having a baby. And also through this whole process, your own relationship status changed through this re- reporting process. What are there any takeaways from incarcerated couples that you now think about in regards to your own relationship, like how you can make it better or make it thrive or things to look out for? I think when it comes to my relationship with my now husband, I came to realize just what a huge privilege it is to get to be annoyed and irritated by him up close and personal day to day. (laughs) You know, when you live with someone, my God, especially throughout the pandemic, and you know, you have to hear them shouting into Zoom eight hours a day and their weird work voice. That was really tough. But I was talking to people almost every day who maybe got to spend time with their partner once a year, twice a year, that did not have that up close and personal intimacy. So when I find myself getting on the verge, which, you know, that happens. That definitely happens. I just try to remember that what we take for granted and that that none of this is guaranteed. And for millions of people in this country, getting to just be up close and personal with their loved one is not on the table. So I really do try to remember that. And then as far as my son and my son to come very soon, I'll never forget interviewing an incredible woman named Regina. She's not in the book, but she had a husband and a son who were both in prison. She ended up marrying her husband because in the state where she lives, you can only see immediate family if it's more than one person you're trying to visit in prison. So since her son was already incarcerated, she and Manuel decided to get married. And of course, because they love each other too. But I asked her, what's the difference between being a prison wife and being a prison mom? And she said, when I say goodbye to Manuel, I'm always really sad and it's it's always hard, but you know, I know he's a man and he's going to make it and he's, he's strong and he knows what to do. She said, but when I say goodbye to my son and he's walking back to that cell, that's my baby. And all I see is my baby boy. And I think about that a lot. So, you know, that's another side of this story is that there are people, many, many, too far too many people in this country who are both mother and wife to someone in prison. And that's always your baby. Yeah, I, so many of the stories in the book, the the successful stories and the not successful stories, I walked away just thinking, shit. You can't take anything for granted in this life. You really can't. Uh, But you did such a beautiful job reporting them. And I, I feel like your subjects just trusted you so much to be 
a carrier of their stories, which is a hard, hard thing to do to carry these stories with you and to, to put them out in the world. So congratulations. I, I don't know if people tell authors congratulations enough, but you did such a beautiful, beautiful job. And I'm just in awe of the work that you did. Thank you so much, Joe. That I really appreciate that. Everyone get the book, get the book um, and tell everyone where they can, where they can follow you, where they can get more copies of the book, et cetera, et cetera. All of the things. Sure. The book is Love Lockdown, Dating, Sex, and Marriage in America's Prisons. You can find that uh, wherever books are sold, as they say. And you can follow me on social media at Liz Greenwood for you. Number four, letter U. This episode of Committed was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza, with a very special thanks to Sheila and Joe Robinson. Supervising producer is Ramsey Yunt. The executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Klang. Theme song and music by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at joe at committedpodcast.com that's j-o at committedpodcast.com you can grab a copy of joe's book how to be married on amazon or wherever books are sold committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in atlanta georgia for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows a new season of bridgerton is here And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.